no one wants to think about going to the hospital. But if you or a loved one has to be admitted, it can make things a lot easier if you know what to expect. On today's episode, we're sitting down with a doctor who specializes in hospital medicine. Dr. Monique Nugent is Associate Director of Hospital Medicine at South Shore Hospital in Weymouth, Massachusetts. She literally wrote the book about what to do when you have to go to the hospital, including some things you can do now to be prepared. We'll also get some behind-the-scenes insights into the hospital world so you can be an active partner in your healing journey or be an effective advocate for your loved one. Hi, welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and today it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Monique Nugent, who is a board-certified internist and a full-time hospitalist. And if you don't know what that means, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And she's also author of the book, Prescription for Admission, the doctor's guide for navigating the hospital, advocating for yourself, and having a better hospitalization. So welcome to Welcome, Monique. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Absolutely. Because, you know, I can't remember how I came across the book, but when I saw it, I thought, you know, this is something that we don't talk about. And and I think it's one of those things when people get into it, they're so in the midst of things, yeah. it's almost too hard to you know, kind of reset, if you will. So, yeah. yeah. yeah so, so- Go ahead. I'm so sorry. It's interesting. When I, I wrote the book out of what I saw as a big need. Um, and I thought, wow, this is everyone's going to be so excited to read it. Um, and it's exactly what you said. It's actually not something people are excited to think about. Um, people <laughs> yes. are not excited to think about going to the hospital. It's not something people naturally just grab um, off the shelf. Um, it's when they need it. And, and a lot of the times, like you said, people are so caught up in the middle of an experience that they don't know what help they need. So my hope is that a couple people get to this before they need it. <laughs> um, and, and some people get some tools to be able to understand what's happening in the hospital. Right. And speaking of tools, you actually have kind of like a quick guide that uh, someone can download or, or print out. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that. So uh, in the front of the book, there's a QRS code. And um, when you purchase it, you can scan that QRS code. It'll take you to a website where you can download a quick guide of what I thought were the highest yield points in the book. Um, and this way you can kind of keep it with you on your phone, on your computer, whatever it is, um, to have as a really quick, quick reference. Um, the book itself, I've purposefully made um, to be a quick reference. I don't have a hard copy because I want it to be thrown into your purse, rolled into a bag. Um, it has a few pages for you to fill out for your medication list, some of your history, your thoughts around um, a code status, um, because it, it's meant to be a tool. So anything I could do to make the it more useful, the book like actually more useful, like the quick guide, I try to include. Sure. And to that point, I mean, there are some things that we all could do so that in the case of, God forbid, of an emergency, you have that. And so you you listed a couple of those. When you said code status, that's basically an advanced directive of some sort. So talk a little bit about that and any other things that you would suggest folks do, whether or not they're planning an admission, if you will. Yeah. So 
the number one thing I want people to know is that if you are the owner of your own information, like clear, consistent information, this is going to be a big boon to you to help you set up a safe and effective hospitalization. So you should really know as much about yourself as possible or where to get that information. So if you are on medicines, keep a list of your medicines or know where you can get that list. Nowadays, I have a lot of patients who hand me an app. They say, this is my doctor's office app. This is great because I have the most updated list. Or they say, call the CVS on, you know, Main Street in my town. That's great, too, because we get that information. We know when the last time it was picked up, what the correct dosage is. And and having that clear and consistent information, like I said, is going to set you up for being able to have a safe and effective hospitalization. Now, what you talked about, code status, talk about another topic people don't like talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? But it's something we all need to talk about. What is your code status? Well, your code status is what you have decided you would want done for you in the case of an emergency if your heart stopped beating or you stopped breathing, right? Why do we ask this when they come into the hospital? We ask this not because we think something bad is going to happen, right? The chances are, you know, sick people do come into the hospital and sick people have emergencies, so the chances are not zero, right? But it's to respect your wishes, Uh, in the case of something like that occurring. And so I think it's really important for people to sit down uh, and figure out what are their values um, and what would they want done in some case of an emergency. And I always tell people the best time to make these decisions is when you don't have to. Because if I'm looking at you and I'm saying, we need to make this decision now, chances are we're in a situation where it's a little too late to have a thoughtful and full conversation. Or you may not be able to, right? If you're right. in a coma or just unable to, to communicate, and then you're leaving your loved ones with that um, decision. Right. So uh, I it really is a gift well. to, to your loved ones to have that done beforehand. I love that word gift, right? I, I talk about it in my book. Um, the mm-hmm. more information you can put into your advanced directive, which is you, a legal document that's you give all of the information about what you want done, who should be making decisions for you. Um, people get really specific. They, you know, I've seen people say things like, if after two weeks I cannot come off the ventilator, I want X, Y, and Z done. But then I've also seen people be really general, like my sister will make my decisions from here on. Boom. You know, so it can be anything you want, but it's your document meant to speak for you. And if you can give your loved ones I'm going to use your word again, the gift of more information, then what you're doing is you're letting them act in your behalf as the best as you would. And that, believe me, relieves a lot of tension and guilt for people when they know they're following your directions. Absolutely. Well, it looks like we started with the end first, so hopefully... (laughs) We'll get back to just the admission itself. And, you know, it's interesting. You talked about, you know, sick patients going to the hospital. And, you know, you're younger than I am, but you probably also remember the time when, you know, the threshold for hospitalizations was much lower, perhaps, than Mm -hmm. it is now. Because really, because we've had much more advantages technologically and therapeutically, so that we don't necessarily need to hospitalize folks that we might have hospitalized before. So that's the good news. But really, 
the patients that are being hospitalized, for the most part, unless you're pregnant and having a baby, are really the sicker patients. And so what are some of the biggest challenges that patients face, you know, as they're being admitted and perhaps, again, more ill? And, and, and you know, again, that gives you a whole sense of vulnerability, I believe. Yeah. So uh, what I find is, is there's a lot of fear with coming to the hospital and interacting with the behemoth that is um, American hospitals. American hospitals are systems within systems within systems um, to care for patients. And so people often come in, you're already sick, you're already in pain, you, you know, and it can be isolating. And so people often struggle with feeling out of control. And I think a lot of that has to do with their support system and information. And information comes down to communication. Uh, if there's not consistent communication, and consistent doesn't have to be like moment to moment that you get every update. It, you know, you can say to the, the care team, you know, um, please call me if there are changes with someone's respiratory status. Please call me every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Please call me every day at 11 you know, or whatever you come up with. But if there's not consistent, clear communication, if somebody doesn't feel like they have information or the team doesn't have information, um, this is where people start feeling uneasy and and things kind of can fall apart. That sounds like a really great plan. But as you and I both know, it doesn't always get executed depending on who's um, mm-hmm. provide you know mm-hmm. who's providing the care. We're so dependent on on nurses to do that for the most part, but shifts change and and so forth. So, and then going back to the you and I were having a conversation before about hospitalist. So mm-hmm. let's move into that a little bit in terms of trying to communicate with someone who's sh- really changing shifts every eight hours or every ten hours. So what's your best advice to, to someone? to try to manage that. Yeah. So, so we'll unpack a couple of, of points in that question. So um, how the team who cares for you um, spends their day really kind of depends on, like you said, um, the shifts that they're set up in. Uh, an academic institution will have people seeing patients in a different way than an institution that doesn't have residents or students. Um, But what will happen everywhere is you will have a primary care team, Um, a team that is responsible for getting the work in the days done, right? When does stuff happen in a hospital? Happens in the daytime, as it happens kind of anywhere else. So from around like 6, 7 a.m. to 6 or 7 p.m. is when like most of the bulk of of hospital work gets done Um, because you know, hospital work depends on the whole system to care for patients, x-ray techs, speech pathologists, EEG techs, and those people keep kind of working business hours as well. So what I always say to people, um, and what I've said in the book is like, you want to be communicating with that primary team. If you're calling the hospital at like 11 o'clock at night, the chances are that the person who's working that night doesn't know the daytime workings of what happened. Um, And they're going to be going through the chart and kind of coming up with what they believe is the the thing that's happening versus if you're talking to someone at 11 a.m., 
right? That is the person who is going to be doing the bulk of the work, um, the admissions, the discharge, talking to the specialists. And so um, I try to tell people, um, make sure you're talking to that primary team because it can be frustrating and very disappointing um, if you are talking to someone who's not particularly well-versed in what's going on, right? So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing is setting an expectation around communication is really a two-way street. Um, it, I, I have had a lot of experiences where um, a patient's adult child will come in on day three or four of the hospitalization and say, I've never heard from you, doctor. I have no idea who you are or why my mother's in the hospital. Um, yet I've been seeing a patient who is awake, alert, oriented, times three, able to make her own decisions. <laughs> when I say... Um, is there anyone else you want me to talk to? Oh, no, I updated my daughter, right? Um, and so there are um, rules around who we communicate with and how, right? And so it may not be inherent to the physician, the nurse, or whoever to call someone's daughter um, if they don't know that that's the expectation. Um, and so the expectation sh- for who should be communicated with should be set pretty early. And I would assume along those lines, you would also prefer that there might be one family member that's the designated per, you know, information person, if you will, uh, so yes. that you're not calling multiple family members. I had a friend recently whose brother was in the hospital, and she took it on herself to be the point person, and then she would do a group text to everybody that needed to know. And then she would take their questions and then, you know, be that conduit. So is that something that you would suggest? I would definitely suggest that. In my years of doing this, I've gotten into that practice. And I say it in the book, to find one touch point, one person whose job is going to be then to communicate with the rest of the family. Um, And so that's really important. You know, and I remember when I was, uh, you know, attending on the wards, it does matter to have a family member there it really makes it more personal. That person becomes a little bit more real, especially if they're not able. They're in a, you know, they're intubated or they're, you know, have a breathing tube or 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 in a coma. The other thing that I've <clears throat> seen is that again for those patients who are not are maybe out of it, that uh, notes written to say, "This is my dad, and he is, you know." Uh, a retired professor of medicine and just to kind of give some kind of profile that this is the person that you're seeing in this bed is not the same vibrant person that we know and we want you to know how important he is to us. Yeah. So I do the nature of my work means I come in contact with a lot of older um folks and um something that's really important to me is is to ask their loved ones, you know, what is their baseline? What are they really like? Because you're right, you come into the hospital, they get very sick, they get very confused, you lay in the bed, they get very weak, can't walk the way they used to. Um, and so if if we as caretakers learn to incorporate the loved one's thought process and experience, right? Like, what is mom really capable of? Um, tell me what her days are like. That really makes a big difference. Um, In my book, I wrote about an experience where I had a very, very confused patient. 
I couldn't really imagine her, like you said, doing much else. Um, and her grandson came in and said, well, she's a dancer. I said, oh, when, when was the last time grandma danced? Because I get a lot of that. Like, oh, my grandpa was a pilot. When was the last time you flew? 15 years ago. Okay. It's a different experience. And this young man took out his cell phone and he showed his grandma and him dancing at a party two days before. And I said, okay, I know what I need to do. It just gave me a very different view of what the person in the bed was capable of. And three days later, she was awake. She was walking. She wasn't dancing great, but she was doing her thing (laughs) down the hallway, you know. Um, And he gave me, as her caretaker, an expectation. This is what I know she's capable of. And that makes a really big difference. Um, And so that's why I say, like, if you feel like you got to show up, show up. You don't have to show up every day. I mean, it would be nice if you can, but even just every other day or maybe trading off with another loved one, mm-hmm. I think is, is so important. It's, it's really big. It's really big, particularly for our older folks. Um, and the other thing is uh, being in the hospital is very isolating. You know, people are sick. They're not in their best. They're in pain. They're nauseous. You know, they're going through a bunch of tests. Um, they're out of their element. They're out of their usual activities for the day. And and so if you can come by, spend some time with your loved one and be a part of that support system, that, that helps someone's morale as well. And that's so important. We know that lo- loneliness and isolation are really big drivers of illness as well. So. Oh, yes. So that's a really good point. Let's back up a little bit because I promised in my introduction that we would explain what a hospitalist is. And I think people who've been to the hospital may be familiar with that, but this is a relatively new paradigm. I had my patients in clinic, and then I saw them in the hospital, Mm -hmm. and I wrote the orders, but things have changed. So talk a little bit about the relationship between a primary care provider and the hospitalist and what people should be looking for to uh, anticipate. Wonderful. So you're right. The paradigm before um, the creation of hospitalists was that people would see patients in the, the clinic and then they would go to the hospital and they kind of spend their day go back and forth and the nurse would call the office and they would give orders. And, and so the same person who you saw uh, in the clinic for your everyday heart stuff would see you in the hospital for if you had a big heart event, right? So what ended up happening in like the early to mid 90s is... Um, Some people started saying, well, how about if I just see your patients in the hospital and you stay in the clinic um, and we set up a financial relationship that benefits us? And so the practice of hospital-based physicians, hospitalists, started around then. So it's a relatively young um, specialty in comparison to things like cardiology, right? Um, And so what we as hospitalists do, uh, and it's a paradigm that has kind of spread out from internal medicine to different um, specialties as well. But what we as hospitalists do is we only see acutely hospitalized patients. So what I tell my mom's friends, because if you can't tell your mom's friends what you do, you you can't really, (laughs) you have (laughs) not been successful, right? So true. So what what I tell my mom's friends are, if you come to the hospital, you're over age 18, you're too sick to leave, but you don't need the ICU. I'm going to be the doctor who will care for you for the rest of your time. 
Um, and so uh, what we do is we admit patients, we make plans for patients, we care for them through their hospitalization, and then we work with the rest of the care team, speech therapy, physical therapy, case managers, radiologists, the specialist, any specialist that you need to create a solid medical plan so that when it's time for you to be discharged, you have a safe discharge. And so um, it's a career that I, I have really grown to love. It's pretty interesting. There's no day that's the same. Um, and, you know, I do get to see the same patients a few times uh, over the years, and you do get to build certain relationships with people. Um, but it really has changed, like you said, the way people were practicing, because now you have a group of physicians who are always available. Uh, when I leave my shift in the daytime, there's another set of hospitalists, they're called nocturnists, who come in, and they run the hospital at night. And they have a different set of goals than I do. So my goal is to you know, admit and care for patients. I have lots of family meetings. Um, I meet with specialists and I create these care plans with the team and I help patients, you know, progress out the hospital. Nocturnists are really focused on creating a lot of flow, getting patients out of the emergency department into the hospital by doing admissions 24 hours a day, right? They respond to emergencies throughout the hospital. They're really there to make sure that the hospital can continue to run and the patients are safe throughout the night. The, the hope is, is that the primary care physician and the hospitalist will be in communication so that there's, when the, the patient is discharged, there's that seamless handoff, if you will. Mm-hmm. Does that happen in real life, in your experience? That's a great question. Um, I think both professions would really like it to be more seamless than it is, right? Um, I often reach out to primary care physicians, particularly when I'm having a difficult time understanding um, a patient's care trajectory or their goals of care. Um, But, you know, I think the unfortunate thing is that the pace of medicine nowadays requires our primary care doctors to see a lot of patients in clinic. Um, And they keep such large panels um, that keeping a really like close eye on every patient, I think is very difficult for them. And so they do rely on a lot of electronic communication and access to medical records. And would you suggest that there are things that perhaps patients would want to bring with them to the hospital with respect to some things from their own home? Yeah. So um, this one is a really old tool, but a paper and pencil or a paper and pen to write things down. Um, You're going to meet 10 different people who say 20 different things who have 30 different requests from you right? Write down who's who, uh, what your questions are when they pop into your head. Because when the doctor walks in and they say, how are you? Um, People are going to say, oh, I'm fine. And then they'll forget that like 10 minutes ago that, you know, they had this burning question about a test result. Um, So write things down so that you're, you are organized and you know what's happening. Um, And Anything that you need to communicate with and be in your environment. I see a lot of older folks do things like not bring their hearing aids or their teeth um, or their glasses for fear of losing them. Those things actually really are important and keep you engaged and part of your environment. Um, No one wants to lose their hearing aids. I totally understand that. So the initial in like 
impulse to give them to your daughter when she's leaving. Um, I, I, I get it. But if you're cutting yourself off from your environment, um, you're not going to hear what's happening. It could be a safety issue. You feel a little bit more isolated. Um, so all of those assistive devices that you use, you if you use a walker or a cane, they should give you one, you know, but um, in if you like yours because it's bedazzled or it has the little tennis ball on it, whatever it is that you need to to feel a little bit more like yourself. Um, don't forget those things because you need to be engaged and part of your environment. Um, you need to hear what people are saying when they bring you down for a CAT scan. You want to hear when they say, like, take a deep breath in. You want to hear that, <laughs> right? You want to be able to read the consent form with your glasses. Um and then the teeth thing, um, please don't forget your teeth. Um, it will change your diet. You might be more prone to, to choking. <laughs> I know that these sound kind of silly, um, but our, our elders n- need a lot of these things um, to get through their day. And so bring your paper, your pen, bring your eyes and your ears, um, bring your cell phone and your charger. Um, because the one that they give you is actually some nurses that she left behind and she's going to come <laughs> looking for it later. <laughs> right. Um, because whatever gets you in in touch with your support system and keeps you engaged, um, those are really important. And that's going to help you stay alert and be a part of your hospitalization and a driver of your care. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that people hate about the hospital food <laughs> and the gowns. <laughs> so any any suggestions about uh, making it more palatable when you're in the hospital? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so some hospitals have been trying hard to change the food thing. Uh, hospital food sometimes can be a prescribed diet that people don't take a liking to, right? So people may come in the hospital and they may need a different texture of food. Um like if someone has had a stroke and they can no longer swallow very well, or some people, you know, if someone has had a surgery or a stricture or something. Um, and so that could be a reason why someone's food changes is that they have um, like a, a need to help them with their swallowing. And then there's the medical prescribed diets like low salt, um, low fat. If you're on dialysis, you know, like low potassium, low. So like none of that, I think, is really like ultra appealing to people. Um, but it's part of the treatment. And what I suggest to people is if you don't have to prescribe by a diet, like you're there because, you know, your foot got run over and you just are there for like toe surgery or something like that. then like, yeah, have your friend bring you something to eat um, and get a little bit more comfortable. That's perfectly fine. But if you're getting a prescribed diet, take the time to ask to talk to a dietitian or a nutritionist. Um, and learn how you can live with that diet when you leave the hospital. Because it's just going to be like a couple of days that you're in the hospital. But it's going to be forever that with, you're with yourself. Is it frowned upon to bring your own pajamas or robe or gown? But the hospital gown is is um, designed for maximal access. Um, and so I think that it's hard to say... Because I've seen a lot of patients wear their their own clothes and their own gowns when they don't need things, right? So patients who don't need a lot of care, like through IVs or don't have catheters and things like that, 
they are perfectly fine. And, and I don't think much is said about that. But if you have tubes and, and IVs that need accessing, this is where it may be uh, uncomfortable and cumbersome um, to have your own clothes that don't make it safe for them to access those things. We know as physicians that you want to basically try to get patients out as much as, as fast as possible because you don't want them to get sick or get yeah. sicker. You know, there <laughs> yes, are some yes. hospital-based infections and things like that. And also, there is an increased risk of mistakes happening. And mm-hmm. we, you know, again, hope they're usually few and far between, but they do happen. And if someone sees something, for example, that they think you know, maybe a mistake or they have a question about or a concern. What's the best way to address that? So definitely real time. If you see something that you're concerned about, talk about it in the moment that you're concerned about it um, so that it can be addressed immediately, clarified immediately, whatever it is. Um, So the thing that I often find is that people say like, oh, this happened like two or so days ago. Um, and that can be kind of hard to unpack because the person who was there is no longer here to t- say exactly what happened or why they did something. Right. But if you have a concern or problem, try and address that real time. And I always say like, try to address it in to the person who's doing that thing, the person you're seeing right away. So if if it's a nursing concern, you know, address it with nursing kind of immediately. Um, I always encourage people to be, I know it's hard to be um, cordial and, um, and respectful when you're feeling unwell or you feel like somebody's hurting you. And I never, I'm not in any way suggesting people, you know, tamp down their emotions. Um, but it does go like we're all human things go better if you can try and navigate things with a little bit of forethought and respect um and try and address it immediately and if with the person who's doing it and everyone has a boss right so every nurse has a charge nurse for that floor every charge nurse has our nurse manager for x unit or units um every physician has a director And so try and escalate through that. Um, And another really useful thing to do is to escalate your concerns through patient advocacy. Um, Hospitals have patient advocacy offices. They may have different names. They may call themselves like patient experience or patient support. Um, But these offices are meant to help patients navigate sticky situations or when they feel like they're not being heard or something is going wrong in their care. You talked about like if you don't go home. So talk a little bit about that and what some of those options might be, as well as kind of even the whole process of discharge planning. Yeah. So um, discharge planning starts the day that you are admitted. Um, People don't like to hear that, but it it is true. When you hear someone say, oh, where did you come from? Do you live at home? Do you live at a facility? What, What we're doing is saying like, okay, can they return home? Oh, no, they are from a facility. So they will return to that facility, right? Who do you live with? Are you capable of caring for yourself? Or is your spouse no longer able to care for you? So it's really important to get all of that social information. And there's going to be a set of uh, healthcare, uh, part part of the healthcare team, excuse me, there's going to be a part of the healthcare team, um, the social workers and the case managers who are really going to be plugged into that. 
um, and say, how can we help this person be successful after they're discharged from the hospital? Sometimes that success means that you may not be safe to go home yet, right? So just because you are not 100% better, it doesn't mean you still need to be in the hospital. Um, Back in the 80s, 90s, I think hospitalizations were a little bit longer um, and people could kind of convalesce a little bit more in the hospital. And nowadays there's, um, like you said, a higher threshold for admission. There's a little bit of a lower threshold for discharge because of how much care can be done in the community. And so after the hospital, there's a group of um, healthcare facilities that are termed uh, post-acute care facilities. Um, And so what I suggest to people is be really honest about what your capabilities are in your home, because the last thing you want is an unsafe situation in the home, because you don't want the patient to get hurt, but you also don't want the people caring for them to get hurt. And... If that means that home is not the place, then the next thing is, where is that going to happen? Um, <laughs> and so this is where the case managers are going to be able to put together that medical need, um, that community need, the insurance need, and, and help you find a place to go. And I always suggest to people, if you have somebody who can go look at them, go take a look at these facilities um, and, and really get a feeling of what it's like. Sure. And you mentioned you anticipated my question about finances, because some people, again, I think are could be concerned. And so that those case managers also have an eye to even if somebody doesn't have insurance or what the coverage could be, even maybe even going home and having services at home as well. Oh, yeah. And uh, and also, I would assume community services that might be available. Yeah, your case manager um, is a wealth of knowledge. They know the things that are in the community. They know what your insurer um, has contracted with. They know what how many days of insurance capability you have. Um, and so be really in touch with that person, with the case manager. Be really open and honest with them um, because they may know community services that are available that can help you out. Food insecurity is a big issue, and that's a big reason someone may not be successful outside of the hospital. So share that and be open and honest and see how we can help get you more resources. And and that's particularly important when we talk about end-of-life care um, because most people don't want to die in a hospital. Uh, a lot of people have made it very clear they would like to die at home. Um, but can your loved ones do that? And, and when you have somebody in the home, what are their needs medically? And how can you help the caretakers meet those needs? Um, because, like I said, the last thing you want is for somebody to fail. Ask, 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 ask for everything you need. Um, because your success outside of the hospital is the most important thing. As we end the podcast, what would be the one golden nugget or two that you would like to leave the listeners with? Um, don't forget your mental health. Like I said, a hospitalization is, is isolating. Um, it breaks up your usual routines. Um, it brings a lot of fear and anxiety, which is understandable, right? Um, you may be getting life-changing information during hospitalization. Uh, you may 
be undergoing surgery. All, all of these things are outliers in your life. Um, and so please don't forget to address your mental health. If you take um, a medication for your mental health, don't forget to tell your providers when you walk in the door, like, hey, I take this antidepressant. You should continue taking it if it's safe. There may be reasons that it's not, but at least they know um, and it can be on your list. And if they're not giving it to you, you can ask why. Um, reach out to your friends and family. Reach out to whoever you use for spiritual support. Journal. FaceTime. Don't don't forget about that part. That part is really important. That part is also going to help you be successful in the hospital. Because hospitalization, if you go through it, excuse me, alone, you're, you're likely to miss a few things or not really grasp everything that that's happening. And so use your support system and, and pay attention to your mental health. So true. Well, Dr. Monique Nugent, this has been a really informative conversation. I know I've actually even learned um, some things I didn't know. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you again. I really had fun with this conversation, Mitzi. Terrific. And so uh, Dr. Monique Nugent is the author of the book Prescription for Admission, and she is also the Associate Director of Hospital Medicine at South Shore Hospital in Weymouth, Massachusetts. I hope I said that correctly. And your book uh, is available on Amazon and all the usual suspects, right? Correct. Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, anywhere you buy a book. Terrific. Um, it also comes in ebook. And I highly recommend it. Again, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you again. I hope this episode has been helpful. I know I learned a lot. If you want to learn even more, we have articles at beyondthepapergown.com based on my conversation with Dr. Nugent with some additional detail about discharge options when you can't go directly home from the hospital and more. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter so you can have access to our latest updates. And we'd love to hear from you. If you've been in the hospital, what was your experience like and how could it have been better? Let us know by messaging us on Instagram or Facebook. And remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen on. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate us. That truly helps us out. Until next time, be well. Our podcast is produced by Patrick Shambayati and myself, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian.